Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Please Watch This, a podcast where two film-loving mates with gaps in their viewing history recommend films to one another. So they can once and for all answer the question, who has better taste? As always, with me is my friend Sam Blakely. Sam, I've got a question for you. When do you like your apocalypses? <laughs> Roughly, I'd say mid-afternoon. Yeah. In a bit, not... In a while, not like now, just well, like just after the napalm. Just after the napalm. That's, that's yeah. Always so a good napalm place. in the morning. Yeah. Then apocalypse. So apocalypse then. <laughs> apocalypse. This week's episode is apocalypse then. <laughs> yeah. Mid afternoon, sort of two ish. Yeah. Uh, you know, after mid afternoon tea. <laughs> <laughs> so Hugh, you are the host for this uh, this week's episode because you have recommended the film. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what is the film? And what's it about? So, as our listeners will have heard there, a bit of Ride of the Valkyries by Richard Wagner plays a big part in this film. It's the 1979 film Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Dennis Hopper. Um, a surprising Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, surprise, Lawrence Fishburne. A 14-year-old yeah. four, Lawrence Fishburne. We'll, was, we'll get to that. We'll he get to was that. 14, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> let's get into it then as the uh, music plays out a little bit here. So oh, there's a bit more musicality there. Just enjoying that. <laughs> Shut up while they let the audience listen to it. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I, I like that song, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Let's um, go into battle. <laughs> hurrah. Huzzah. Um, huzzah. So, as we always do... Well, tell, I'll tell you what, tell us, tell us, what is this film? So, this, were, this film is basically Francis Ford Coppola's war epic. Um, it's a study of the Vietnam War. It's a study of uh, the crazy things people do uh, when they're in a war zone. It's, it, it's an epic of gargantuan proportions. Um, it doesn't, you know, I think I heard a good saying earlier that it was, Apocalypse Now is, well, actually, no, what it was is there are war movies and then there's Apocalypse Now. And that pretty much sums up how I feel about this film. And this is why I'm recommending it to you this week, Sam, because it's such an incredible film. I'm going to just jump straight into it uh, because there's a lot to get through. Um... So, what would you want to talk about first? Do you want to talk about, like, how it came about? Well, one one thing that we always... Do, so, the, the way the show works, for those who are listening for the first time, or if you've forgotten, um, the host will recommend a, a film to the other person that they've never seen before, and then they'll watch it. So, I, I Sam, had never seen Apocalypse Now. Hugh presumably seen it many times. I should also tell the listener that Hugh is a history buff. So, um, he will hopefully be able to fill in some gaps in my knowledge in terms of maybe the historical context of the film, but it's also a lot of pressure on Hugh this week because this, <laughs> when I when I, I watched it just cold, I just watched it for the first time cold um, a few days ago without really knowing anything about it, and then after watching it, I did a little bit of research around it and I found out this is one of those films that um, the the story behind it is more, you know, is, is, it takes longer to find that out than actually watching the film. So Hugh has got a lot of pressure on him today in having to know all that stuff. Yeah. So I'm hoping you've seen Heart of Darkness as well, Hugh? Um, right, okay. So oh, Eleanor dear. Coppola, <laughs> who is Francis Ford Coppola's wife, when they were filming this film in the Philippines um, in 76, they, she basically made a documentary called uh, Into the Hearts of Dark or Hearts of Darkness, you know, Apocalypse Now. I think that's what it was called. Um, and I didn't watch that documentary because... Um, well, the f version I recommended that Sam watched of Apocalypse Now was actually the Redux version, because that was the version I first saw when I think I was about maybe 15 or 16, I think, around that age, um, a couple of years after it came out. So I said, look, please watch this version of it, because this is the one I saw. I didn't see the original cut, so I thought I'd get him at the same point that I was at. So there's a few added extra scenes into it. So there's the bit uh, on the French plantation. Uh, there's the the extra scene with the play Playboy bunnies in it. Um, there's some rejiggering of certain things that happen in the film. Uh, the bit where Lance um, water skis is earlier on in the film, where in this it's after they've been to the um, after they've been to the uh, Playboy bunny show. Um, there's a few extra bits at the end when he's at Brando's camp, but that's the one I saw. So was that the one you ended up watching? Because we never actually... Well, here's where I need to it. confess that it wasn't. 
I've had a fairly uh, hectic... Uh, I mean, I've not been at work, but I've had a fairly hectic time in between. I went to three count them three computer exchange shops and only found the uh, the original cut so i watched that and then what i did was i went on youtube and watched a lot of the other stuff so i've seen a lot of the french plant french plantation um and the oh but i should say we're going to get into spoilers each week we, we are completely spoilerific yeah um yeah i mean on a very I mean, personal you've had 40 level, years you know <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons we're yeah. doing this is because it's the 40th anniversary of the film's release um in the UK, so yeah, we're, there's actually another version. Is it one of the reasons we're doing that? Yes, that's why I picked it this week. Oh, right, we're pretending. Okay, yes it is, yes, yes, that's... <laughs> well, it was, oh, this week it is? Uh, it was ten days ago it came out and there was a... Right, okay. And people are, there's also another cut that Coppola's done again, which is called uh, Apocalypse Now Final Cut. Uh, I see. Which I don't... I tried to see if there was anything extra in it, but because it's so brand new, it's hard to get those clips on YouTube. If there is anything I extra, I don't know what they've done yeah. with it. To be honest, um, it's hard to know. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot of film, so it's hard. Is he adding to it? It's taking. I, I read somewhere that he he had two hundred hours of footage. It, this was the really tricky thing because there's so much about it, and just in my idle moments of thinking and researching, I really wanted to watch a lot of the stuff to find out more background. But my job really is just to be the ignorant one who hasn't hadn't seen it and now is just seeing it and reflecting and so actually i kept having to stop myself watching or reading about uh, interesting trivia you you know all the extra things and the heart of darkness uh, documentary and and all that sort of stuff so um i'm gonna i'm gonna give that responsibility (laughs) to you today so um hugh what does this film mean to you so this film to me represents um hollywood's attempt to look at the psychological effects that uh, the Vietnam War had on individuals and on the society and also an exploration into the meaning of war and lies and lies by large governmental institutions and um, how, just how can somebody, how, do, how does madness manifest itself in the pressure cooker of war? Um, but what does it mean to you? That's what it means to me. That to me, it means <laughs> those things. It means that exploration of that um, of the human psyche and its and the surrealism that happens when civilization breaks down. And uh, also, like you said, with the uh, with the them trying to make this film, I think that's also an interesting story as well. Which may may it depends on your point of view. May or may not detract from the film uh, as an end product. Um, I think. It's one of those films where you, when I first watched it, obviously it had been around for over 30 years at that point. Um, when I first watched, sorry, 20 years, I think it was, or just over 25 years, I think, after when I first saw it. Um, and yeah, I saw it and I was like, oh, this is a bit strange. Um, it's very unlike any other war film I'd seen up until that point. You know, I'd seen Saving Private Ryan, I'd seen um, Full Metal Jacket, I'd seen uh, Platoon, but I hadn't actually seen Apocalypse Now. And I watched it and was, at first I was a little underwhelmed, and then as I got older, it grew and grew on me, and I realised, actually, no, of all those kind of American Hollywood attempts to look at Vietnam and to try and reconcile themselves to it, um, which, you know, they, they're, they're still trying to do day year in year out you know there's always there's still films about it coming out to this day um you know how did they it's the best of the lot like it's there's not other you know those films aren't bad films by any stretch like i you know i i kind of think that to enjoy not to i think enjoy is a hard word with this but to appreciate this film i think you've got to watch this and full metal jacket because they both do very similar things where I think what Coppola is very good at is he examines the psychology and the realness almost of his characters. These are real people, but they're at the kind of the, they're almost either at the top of their society or their, the area of of influence and they're challenging against that and trying to survive in that or, you know, they're the people dealing with those barriers in front of them and having to overcome them. So Michael in The Godfather is dealing with, you know, his father's 
degradation from being the top mafia boss or one of the top mafia bosses in New York uh, and in this Willard trying to overcome you know his cycle his own post traumatic stress as he deals with a mission he's been given to try and kill uh, Kurtz who's gone off the reservation so to speak so I think that's what Coppola's very good at and then if you watch Full Metal Jacket by Kubrick you get that kind of companion piece almost that well this is how we dehumanized young men who weren't these elite soldiers at the top of their profession they were just in the thick of it in the wrong place at the wrong time so yeah I would recommend you can watch you tell me what films. the uh, on, a, on a more trivial level can you tell me what the cast link is between this film and Full Metal Jacket between this and Full Metal Jacket mm, who who appears in both films um, oh crikey I have no idea let me think yeah uh, it's been a while since I've seen Full Metal Jacket um, no no one's springing to mind well is it's it's a very a small role in Apocalypse Now, but R. Lee Ermey, um, who played the drill sergeant, sergeant in um, Full Metal Jacket, he's a helicopter pilot in Apocalypse Now. Is he? Yeah, fun fact. Oh, I never knew that. I just, I just saw him. He's got a very research. distinct voice, very distinct voice and very distinct face. And I mean, I might be wrong, but I'm I'm about 95% certain I'm right. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. in that. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting fact. That's one I didn't come across. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's and this is it. I think something you said to me before we did this is if you you did say earlier, there's a lot of pressure on me to get to get into this. Um, but I don't know as much as the internet. So this is just my <laughs> explanation into you know my own apocalypse now as heart of darkness. I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to have the same thing ne- uh, next week. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure I can reveal now because we'll talk about it at the end of the, the show next week. We're going to be doing The Shining. And that's got as much written about it as, as this film, and I'm not an expert. So I will be bringing in a friend uh, who knows a bit more about it uh, Ooh, than, than I do as well. Yeah, just to tease that one for the for the listeners. Or spoil it um, entirely. <laughs> not gonna or say. spoil it entirely. It's hard to know between t- teasers and spoilers. Yeah. Um, what, um, <clears throat> excuse me, why do you think I might like this film, so specifically me? I think you might like this film because of the psychological side of it. I recommended it to you. Again, this was a bit like a, the Star Wars recommendation. I think it was a film that you kind of should have seen by now. Um, yes, given how much it definitely qualifies for our, it qualifies for our podcast, doesn't it, as a, as a sort of essential film that everyone's supposed to have seen. Yeah, I'm not... Uh, well, I'm not... You know, it's hard to say what you should have seen, but I think it's got enough of a, a resonance in culture that even if you don't like it, you can maybe... Like I think with again with Star Wars, I think you can appreciate it maybe for what it is rather than yeah. or what it represents <laughs> rather than what it is. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought even if you don't like it, I think it might be a film that might stay with you long after you watched it. Um, personally, that's my that's why I recommended it. Also, I just think sometimes th- these like I'll be honest, I don't mind The Godfather. I don't think it's Personally, I don't think it's as great as everyone makes out. I think the characters are really well developed in it, but the story's sometimes quite hard to keep up with, and it's a bit overlong. Where with this, you watch it two or three times, and you start seeing nuance in it that you didn't see the first time, because the first time you're just trying to figure out what's going on in this crazy river journey to this insane man's like fiefdom, where on, on like the second and third, you're like... You're looking at the little bits of nuance and all the things going on in the background and listening to the dialogue more because it's kind of in that era of mumble dialogue. So you kind of, like, mm. I've, even upon watching it the couple of times that I saw it here, I put the subtitles on again just to catch little bits and pieces. So, yeah. Well, I, I've, I've watched everything with subtitles on since I watched The Wire the first time. And uh, yeah. and so for about five years now, I've, I've watched everything with subtitles on and it really helps in this film. Um, you know, there's a few bits where there's a very important scene and somebody said something in it, especially if it's Marlon Brando. Um, yes, you really, you really need somebody to write it down just to yeah. help. I, I like. Yeah. The, I mean, I'm going to get into favorite scene now. So I think my favorite scene is um, it's not one specific scene. It's the bit from when Martin Sheen character Willard he's in the boat at the end. He's kind of writhing around in some sort of translucent, semi-starved 
stay, you know, ruminating and all these things that Kurtz has said to him after he's tortured him. And he just goes, do you know what? They're going to make me a fucking major for this. <laughs> and he, he there and realizes that why Kurtz kept him alive. And that's the fact that Kurtz wants him to kill him because Kurtz says you can't judge him, but he deserves to die for what he's done, which is mm. peculiar in its sense. But it's, you know, it's, it's a great scene where you get him, you know, he rises up out of the water with all the face paint on and uh, with the slicked back hair. He like, you know, he's like death incarnate coming for Kurtz and all the music with the doors, wonderful, the wonderful doors, the end song. Um, yeah. Which really bookends the film, doesn't it? Yeah. From the first scene, you know, and that, and it, it, it's intentionally throwing you back to that scene at the beginning because, but, but also the the calm of the initial, you know, half of the end to the absolute chaos and madness and mother, I want to, yeah. <laughs> the end of the song. Yeah, yeah. but it's uh, yeah, and it's like you hear you, you know, in the beginning of that scene, the beginning, you you're seeing him going mad and you know, dealing with his post-traumatic stress of being out in the jungle on his own and fighting against the the Viet Cong and the, and the NVA and he's he's having a really hard time of it and it's like, so he chose to murder and kill because of that rather than, you know, he, even though Kurt says you can't leave, um, he's in the boat, he probably could have left and escaped perhaps and left Lance mm. there and let Lance do what he wanted and become part of this, part of this, uh, this cult sort of thing, but he, uh, you know, he goes in and there's the sacrifice of the uh, water buffalo. And it's oh, so hard to watch like that bit when he comes out and he's just got these, the, like the sword in his hand and he's got the manifesto in the other hand and they all just turn around and look at him and bow down. That, yeah. I think that's, it's really powerful imagery. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, that's, it, it's easy to say that's your favorite scene, but it is because it is the most powerful scene in the film. Well, it's a it's a long film that builds t- essentially to that, so you'd hope that it's a damn good scene to, to do that. Yeah. Um, to do it justice. And then, I mean, there is some other great scenes in it, like the bit with Ride of the Valkyries is amazing. Um, they're, you know, when they're coming out of the sky and they're blowing up this small village so they can go surfing. You know, the you know, a word you find a lot associated with this film, I think, is absurdity, the absurdity of war. Like... You know, the the bit where um, Kilgore asks, <laughs> this crazy colonel asks Lance, uh, the surfer, he goes, what do you think of it? And uh, Lance goes, oh, yeah, it's incredible. You know, I've never seen anything like it. No, the waves. <laughs> yeah, he goes, no, the waves. See which way they break. And He goes left and right. Wee! <laughs> yeah. Shwee, or whatever he says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you, at that point, you're just like, yeah, that's that. you wouldn't have that in any other film, would you? You know, it. You know, it harkens back to the bit in... I mean, well, not for, for me, it harkens back to the scene in Saving Private Ryan where he goes, oh, quite a view. You know, he says superficially the view from the top of the cliff on the English Channel, but really what they mean is the devastation and the fighting on Omaha Beach, where in this it's like, no, no, I don't... I've, you know, the characters, oh, I've seen this a million times for me. <laughs> what do you think of what I'm here to take you to do? And it's that, yeah, it's that. that's amazing, this when I was thinking about the film, I just did a small, <laughs> the amazing mentalness. Yeah. Um, I did a bit of research. I, it, had, it had passed me by that Vietnam, the Vietnam war was for 20 years. Um, it was more, well, it was like, it was about 12, 10 to but 12 the actual, years. Apparently 1955 to 1975, but mm. are you talking more about the U S? Uh, yeah. In that? Yeah. Cause there's, there's two conflicts kind of simultaneously overlapping with each other. Right. There's, the, there's the Vietnamese fight against the French. Um, who were the, the French were involved. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, look, right. I'm not going to go into it because it is, I mean, as much would if you want me to, I can, but we haven't got all day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's really complicated. Um, yeah. Long story short, the French were colonial invaders in Indochina throughout, you know, that sort of area. It's, um, west, uh, east of India, across the is it the Ganges Delta. Um, you know they were in, they were invested there and had colonies there. Um, and at the end of the Second World War, essentially the Vietnamese kind of started fighting them to get their country back. And just to, just to stop you there, are you saying Vietnamese? Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds yeah. like you're saying Vietnamese. 
No, Viet- rather than Vietnamese. Vietnamese. <laughs> so I just thought you said it. I, I thought I heard it twice, and I was like, "Do I need to say something?" <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Vietnamese, about that. Yeah, the Vietnamese. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking quickly so I could get through it. I mean, you're making mm-hmm. this making this bit longer now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they fought against them, and then in about '64, they started incrementally adding troops to the U.S. to try and help the democratic side of the Vietnamese that was <laughs> what I'm saying it correct <laughs> sorry it just it just sounded like you really put put like a stank on it I'm <laughs> laughing to now because you made me self-conscious <laughs> about it yeah sorry about that it's alright I'm just going to cut this bit out of the pod <laughs> you <laughs> bully, bully me horrifically for mispronouncing something <laughs> that you don't know about <laughs> yeah seems fair yeah um, so yeah, so the French were there. They got booted out essentially, and then the Americans kind of came in to try and support the new Vietnamese government that was dealing with the communist threat that had grown up in the north of the country. But it's more complicated than that. And obviously, you yeah. know, they ultimately failed and were chased out. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's something as you uh, you know referred to earlier in, in the in the episode that 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 especially in America, there's spent a long time trying to understand it as a culture and there are lots of films with lots of these similar tropes and it got me wondering actually while I was watching it I thought I'd love to see a a film about the Vietnam War from a Vietnamese perspective because I don't think I've ever really seen that yeah there isn't any is there I mean I think Oliver Stone I can't remember the name of the film but he made a film in the early 90s that was that was from a young woman's perspective because he tried to do three films all in one go that were about or over a course of about 12 years that were about Vietnam the American experience so he did uh, Born on the Fourth of July Platoon and I uh, honestly I can't remember the name of the other film it's not very good quite honestly right, which is why you can't remember that one yeah, it, the other two yeah it, Be- because it's just fascinating because it's you know especially Apocalypse Now there's the school uh, you know during the village that they're, they're trying to get rid of essentially and um, and you do see a lot of innocent death Mm. And obviously, it's interesting enough to it would be interesting enough to see it from a Viet Cong perspective, but actually, to see it just from a civilian, especially a civilian who doesn't really doesn't you know doesn't really know the intricacies of, of why this war happened and so on, and can just see when they see an American helicopter, they know that that means they might die when they've done nothing wrong or a fishing boat, uh, and the fear that that must instill when you know when people are um, yeah camping out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that terror, isn't it? You know, that's why, you know, wars after, you know, from the Second World, First World War onwards, of majority of them have had more civilian casualties than actual combat casualties because of the atrocities that are performed by soldiers doing their duty, so to speak. Um, it is such a theme of this film, and, and many most Vietnamese, you know, most films about the Vietnam War is the idea that the that the the soldiers, the American soldiers, started to not value any Vietnamese life. I mean, you know, these are supposedly people who are going in to help uh, some Vietnamese people, but they're still, they don't ever say Vietnamese people, they say gooks and slants and slopes dinks, yeah. <laughs> slopes, sorry, yeah. and and, uh, and they're, just, they're just the same as, it doesn't matter if they're VC or not, you know, they're, they're really dehumanised. There's a bit of... Um, there's an interesting study actually by somebody called Staub into the stages of genocide, mm. and uh, the the first one is difficult social conditions, so, so unemployment, etc. Then there has to be scapegoating, so all this frustration you you find somebody to scapegoat, and then dehumanisation comes next. So in the Rwandan genocide, there were sort of um, uh, radio broadcasters that would refer to them as cockroaches, and you know obviously in the Holocaust or in the you know, final solution and so on. You'd see Jewish people portrayed as rats, and you know I'm, I know that you know all these things already, um, and it's just such a big part of it, and, and it must help so much that they're a different ethnicity, that so that the American soldiers don't even don't even view them as uh, on the same level of humanity as them. Yeah, I think in this film there isn't much examination. The one thing there isn't an examination of is that Vietnamese experience is there in this film. There isn't a Vietnamese point of view. The only the only real reference you get to them and their actions is where Kilgore goes, you know, he says something along the lines of, oh, why are oh, they're, they're animals? 
you know, when he's that woman throws the grenade into the yeah uh, the savages yeah is it savages that's you know i think it's just a fucking savages you know yeah and that's yeah you when you see stuff like that that's uh that was kind of the, i think that's the writer saying this is that this was their attitude towards them so coming up after the break we're going to find out uh, whether sam liked the film and if he would recommend it himself I loved it. Yes. Yeah, I would recommend it. Great stuff. And I wanted to get that out because I, I, there's so much more I want to talk about. And when you've brought some things okay. up, I wanted to say, oh, I love this, I love that. Yeah, I loved it. So what was your favourite scene? My favourite scene was the, um, the the smell of napalm in the morning and all that stuff, that scene, because Duval is amazing in this film. He is so magnetic and he's so that character. And that character is is incredible. He's one of my. He's become one of my favorite film characters of all time because he's um, he's lost his <laughs> he's lost his marbles. He um, yeah. you know because he's not he's nonplussed. He doesn't flinch at at uh, shells coming nearby at shots. He doesn't flinch at all. And I was trying to get my head around that. I was thinking why, and I thought maybe it's a case of you're there long enough and you know that you could you know flinch every time but still die. Or you could go about your business and not flinch and die. <laughs> so you might as well just not flinch. And the whole surfing thing, you know, the idea that he would choose to go this way because there's a surf out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what is it? A great, another great line is, Charlie, don't surf. Charlie, don't surf. And even the people who like surfing like, but it's really hairy there. We lost McDonald. It's like, oh, I really want to go surfing. I don't care. I don't care if we lost guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's one of those people who's just, he's been in Vietnam too long. Um, and and the performance, I just I can't get over how good that performance was. Um, yeah. So I really Did he steal the show from Brando? Because I think a lot of people, I think, say that oh you've got this mysterious Colonel Kurtz mm. and he's out there in the jungle and he's the kind of the shadow over the film and then you meet him and he's this like philosopher warrior soldier king sort of thing. Yeah. And, I think you sat going, oh, but maybe I would have wanted to have seen more of Duval. It, yeah, when I watched it a second time, man's when I watched it a second time, I did. When it was his last bit on screen, I thought, oh, that's the last. That's the last we get of him in the film. It's a bit in. in, in uh, you mentioned um, Full Metal Jacket. It's a bit like that because they go through boot camp and then there's no more of the drill sergeant, and you're like, okay, mm. we're in. We're in war now. And I do every time I watch it, I do miss. Being in the being in the boot camp when they go to war, it's a it's a sort of two part film, isn't it? Really, there's two very distinct yeah. films within that. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, Kilgore got my my favorite line: "Any man brave enough to fight with his guts hanging out can drink from my canteen any day." And then he doesn't. <laughs> and then he just gives him a bit, and <laughs> splashes a bit, and then he. <laughs> I don't even think. He... I don't even think he drinks it. I think he goes to reach down and you don't... He can't, you I'm don't. not even sure if he does because the guy's like, hey, give me the drink, give me the water. Yeah, <laughs> when he yeah. stands up again. And, and I quite liked it as a character point because it is, he's a complicated character even more then, isn't he? Because he's not, he's not just, they're savages, that's it. They're animals. It's, this man is showing bravery and I can respect that. Yeah, and the bit where the, the mother comes with the baby and he takes the baby and says, get them, get her out of here, get them yeah. back. It's like... How a man can, yeah, he's, I don't know if he's, a, I, I think one of the maybe like critiques of this film I would have is a lot of the characters aren't very, they're, they're, they're larger than life, but I don't believe in them sometimes, if that makes sense. Like, I find it hard with all of them to believe that they're the people who they say they are a lot of the time. Like, I think with Brando's character, he's very, um, like, what does he do? Just sit in that room all day and eat nuts and well, do philosophy. I, see, I believed him because he, uh, that's Marlon Brando. <laughs> like, from what you hear yeah. around the film, he is somebody who does whatever the hell he wants, and people will yeah. sort of it's Marlon Brando, so they let him and they'll pay him a lot of money to do three weeks' work or whatever. 
Yeah, well, not even that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, as yeah, one of the things that came out while I was doing the research for this was for the first four days, Man- Marlon Brando had who had put on a lot of weight at this point, yeah. and him and Coppola were sat there going, "Well, how do we make get you to play this part?" And he's like, "Oh, have you read, you know, have you read Heart of Darkness?" And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, I've read it." <laughs> yeah, and he clearly and then wasn't. On the f- he clearly hadn't. <laughs> and on the fourth night, he, you know, apparently I've not read it, unfortunately. Um, I haven't had time. Uh, and apparently the the character that they're going, the, the British soldier's going to kill in that is a man who's got a shaved head. Right. So the next day, on the fifth day, he comes out with a shaved head. He's like, yeah, I read it last night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I'm ready for the part now. That's great. Yeah, there's just... I mean, I think he would have been a nightmare to work with, quite frankly. Yeah, I th- yeah I'm I happy to watch a think- film he's in. I do, would not have liked to have worked with him. Yeah, I think he's quite lazy. He was quite lazy for this film, personally. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, I think that's the biggest issue, isn't it? It turned up overweight. Because I, I did watch a little making of, or maybe it's an excerpt from uh, the 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 documentary, where um, Francis Ford Coppola was saying that when he met him, he was heavy. And he said, mm. and he said that he promised me he'd lose all this weight. And Coppola was thinking, well, if he doesn't, I can still play it this way. And they had discussions about, well, maybe we'll make you somebody who's indulged yourself. So there'll be two or three tribal girls sat there and, and you'll be eating and all this sort of stuff. And he didn't want that either. He didn't want to be this king of revelry and, and drink and mead and feasting and so on. Mm. But I, th- I think it worked. I think it worked a lot. I really liked having Dennis Hopper's character there as well because he's nuts. Absolutely. Yeah, nuts. Dennis Hopper's wonderful in the couple of scenes that he's in yeah. in this film, actually. Um, where the bit where he's like talking to him in the bamboo cage, and he's like, "He's got plans for you, man," and he's, you know, he said, "You think I can do this? I can't do this." <laughs> and you know, he's like quoting really fast, you know, Shakespeare and T. S. Eliot and all these other uh, authors. Yeah, I, I mean, Brando for me gets my favorite line in the film, which is it uh, the quite uh, oh, can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah, go ahead. Is it you're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect a bill? No, it's not oh. actually. Apparently. If, Quick side note on that: He thought that up himself so, and yeah. he kept it in the film. Amazing! It's a, such yeah. a good line. I don't think it is actually. Really? <laughs> yeah, popular opinion here. It, it's it, it's a good metaphor, but it doesn't sit with the rest of the film for me. Yeah, you can tell it's made once you know it's made up. It actually, yeah, that looks very made up. Just someone going, "Oh, you." I'll say something witty here. And it's, <laughs> it's not like it, it, does it even make sense in the context? What no, not that much. But I, I quite like that he's. It follows on because one of the things that Willard said earlier in the film, to, like in his narration, was um, he talked about the generals and so on being the four-star clowns who are going to give the whole circus away, and it at least sort of mm. matches that in that what he's doing is he's making the people in charge look, is 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 um, undermining them. I don't know if that, I, I mean, uh, most metaphors aren't worth exploring too far beyond just how they make you feel. Yeah, I suppose if it makes you feel like, you know, it's his way of dressing down Willard, isn't it? Yes. To show who's in control. Uh, maybe it works in that sense, but beyond that, I, you know. But I like you can see Willard's fear when he meets him and he's like, mm. and then he's got the balls to say, you know, I don't see any method here. So. Yeah. That that line's brilliant, but yeah, the best line of the film is is the classic, the horror. The, the horror, horror, the horror. Yeah, that whole speech, the inoculation, and they went and hacked off every arm. Where am I uh, mm. now fiancé? That's that's my big personal news this uh, this week. My now fiancé, thank you, um, came and uh, came downstairs and and watched the sort of last third of the film with me, perhaps something like it. Basically. Mm. I think as he was arriving at the compound, uh, oh no, actually just before when they're getting hit by spears and sticks, um, and uh, yeah, she was really gripped by by that speech, having no context really for the film because I didn't want to stop the film and explain everything up to that point, um, mm. and that really struck her. I think the that inoculation speech and that scenario and. Yeah, his way of speaking. I mean, one of the great line actually by him, uh, which is very nice and something you could definitely put on. Um, you know, look how deep I am. Uh, we train young men to drop fire on people, but their commanders won't allow them to write fuck on their airplanes because it's obscene. Yeah. Nice. I mean, the horror just works for me, mm. that line, because it can be interpreted so many different ways. And this film does that so successfully yes. that it makes you go, okay, so 
is he talking about the horror of dying? Is he talking about the horror of war? Is he talking about the horror of madness? Is he talking about all three at the simultaneously as he lays there dying? Yeah. Is he, you know, what is it that is so horrible? But that it's not for him to explain. It's for for us to interpret, and that's why it's. I mean, it's one of the best lines in cinema, quite frankly. <laughs> well, it's one of those things that's wrapped up in the lore of Vietnam. Is people who come back from Vietnam don't want to talk about it. The horror, mm. the horror. You know, it's you don't want to know, and that's almost better than him saying. And this is why I think that. I mean, the the, <laughs> yeah. the hacking off of the arms yeah. is one good example of that. But actually, just to leave it at mm. that would uh, is is just is, is brilliant. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, what um, so what so you so you really enjoyed performance by uh, by Duval? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I thought he was just what? so well prepared for that, and yeah, brilliant. Yeah, uh, he got he got a uh, not so the f- so. Can you guess what film won the Oscar this year for this? Seventy nine. Yeah, in seventy nine. Seventy nine. Um, I assume this got the got a nomination. It got a nomination. I really and it wasn't. Oh, oh, oh it's was not, it? No, it was yeah, not a bad Wars. film. It would have been Star Wars, would it? No, 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 no. It wasn't a bad film that won it, but it's not as good as this in my opinion. Uh, Tootsie. I don't know. Can you give me a no. who was the lead lead actor? Who's the lead? Dustin Hoffman, and I think it's. Oh, is it Kramer versus Justin, Kramer? It is Kramer yeah. versus Kramer. I've still not yeah. seen that actually. I've seen bits of it. I think I've seen most of it all the way. Through. No, I've sat. I sat and watched it a few years back, and was surprised. At, I don't think it aged well, quite frankly. I think it was... It's a good film, but it's not better than Apocalypse Now. No. I mean, the Oscars are often so wrong, aren't they? They're not, they're not a good way of judging what gets the... You know, what's the best film. I mean, you know... But it's hilarious how close they get and then fail, <laughs> and then fail. at the last hurdle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean... Yeah. So, so yeah. So what? So what was? Um, what was the bad bits for the film, or what were the bits that didn't work for you? I found, I you know, found so little. I found so little to say. Really, I mean, the thing that I really liked about it that I was not expecting was how slow it was. I mean, there was lots of stuff happening, but actually, the 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 build made him finally agreeing with Kurtz all the more believable. So it it totally worked for me. I think one thing I didn't like. Although I still think that worked was the reliance on narration. It's a bit of a crutch. Yeah. And I tell you what, this is a complete side thing, but I've been watching a lot of the show Community or rewatching a lot of Community recently. Have you, have you seen that show? Yeah, I've seen it most of it. Yeah. Um, I, and only uh, I think the same day or the day before I watched Apocalypse Now, I watched an, an episode of Community where the dean is making a an advert for their community college, and Arbed is um, making a documentary about him making the thing, and he's and Arbed actually says, "Why am I making this documentary? Well, because the documentary of the downfall is always more interesting than the downfall. Heart of Darkness is better than Apocalypse Now." And I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> and then it does kind of follow it. So the dean, he's got a budget of two hundred dollars day one. You know, they're one hundred and seventy three dollars under budget day two. Six thousand dollars over budget, <laughs> and suddenly he becomes Coppola. And I love all the lo- I, again. I love all the stories about you know um, Sheen having a heart attack, Coppola you know practically committing suicide, and he lost a hundred pounds in weight and all that. And and actually, Community yeah. does does that get that well. And in terms of narration, Arbed either in that episode or a, a different one where he's making documentaries does talk about narration being a crutch, and I think it is, and I think. I don't know what I would have done differently to make it better because it actually worked. But just just the presence of narration in a film automatically, I go right. Well, that could be better then. Yeah, I think for me it didn't detract from it because it's it it makes it it does because of the nature of the film being quite um, you know anarchic. You kind of need something like you do need that crutch in films like this. To, to explain what the hell is going on. <laughs> you know, there's... I'm trying to think... Think of a film where it is a crutch and it's used badly and you don't need it. Uh, warm um, oh, warm t- Bodies. Right, yeah. Th- th- really? I thought that was good in that one. I thought it was good in that one. I thought it was actually quite necessary in that one because he's a zombie so he can't communicate what he's always thinking. It, I think the, one of the problems was that I'd watched it not long after reading a couple of books on 
basically don't use narration and 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 all oh, this yeah. sort of stuff. And I watched it, and uh, there was oh, I'm gonna ha- I, I'm not gonna remember. I don't think right now. But there was two or three other really obvious things uh, that really. Have you ever seen the film Age of Adeline? No. Is that Adeline. is that really? Uh, there's egregious? some weird. Nar- yeah, there's like two bits of narration in the entire film, and it's this really strange like 1930s. 40s-esque like radio man <laughs> talking about this woman who's going Adeline was born in 1929 was in a car accident and then it does it again at the end and it doesn't do it again at all through the film the film has and to it, match that doesn't it the film it, it yeah. can't just be that incongruous yeah it's crazy have you seen, but, have you seen the Blade Runner cut with the narration no I haven't and I never want no, to nor I <laughs> nor I but but yeah I would that is yeah, but that, yeah, I'm trying to think of other films that get it really badly. I quite like it though. I mean, I know, yeah, maybe it is a lazy crutch. But like I say, but... it worked. I didn't, I didn't dislike it at all. Didn't take me out of the film at all. But I was just looking for things not to like about it because you needed a lot of info about Kurtz, and you also needed Willard's take on it. But he's such a, he's such a passenger in many ways, or he's, he's so introverted um, in his thoughts that. Who, who was that? Was it going to be his diary? Was it going to be he confides in one of the people on the boat? Then it changes the film, doesn't it? So actually, it was nice to yeah. have him narrating it without saying, and now I was feeling like this. All he's doing is looking over yeah. Kurt's records and going, what balls? And you go, oh, he's actually he's actually coming around to Kurt's thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think you need it to, because it's an, a psychological... Um, you know, exploration, I think you need the narration in there, personally, because you need to... S- I don't, I'm glad he's not like... Isn't it the narration's done in um, the past... In the past, the film's told in the past tense, isn't it? Yeah, which you know, in in some films they play with this, but generally that means oh, that that means they survive it. There's a couple of films that yeah. obviously fight against that, but yeah, I did think that when he started saying this is in the past. I did think, yeah, well, he, he it, probably doesn't die at Kurtz's compound and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The, I suppose when you know it's in the, he's telling the story from, from the future. You know that he's going to survive. But so I suppose it makes it the mush. But then you find out like you know all the crew except for Lance die. I think that's quite yeah. interesting. Starting um, with the black ones. Yeah, the young, the young one, then the black one, and then the young, yeah. then the older one. And, yeah, it was. The I like the bit though. Yeah. <laughs> I, Although Coppler in um, in his audio commentary for the Redux version says, you know, the, when they get to the bridge over the river and the one that's being attacked every night, and he says the closer you get to the front, the the, the soldiers start to become black yeah. people because that was just how it was. You know, the more the more violent an area, the less you know white. Like the cannon fodder. Yeah. Um, so I think he was very acutely aware of stuff like that. Um, yeah, some of the production stuff. I mean, in the commentary again, he talks about... Um, <laughs> I found this quite funny, actually. He says, oh, I'm really proud that nobody died while we were making this <laughs> yeah, film. I saw that. As if, like, <laughs> yeah. as if, like, how many people have lost <laughs> making The Godfather in the conversation? <laughs> it reminded me of that, uh, That I think it's an outtake of Anchorman when, they, when uh, they're talking to Brick and he's saying, oh, you're going to have your charity golf match, celebrity golf uh, tournament again this year. No, too many people died last year. <laughs> and uh yeah yeah i thought it's a weird thing to be proud of but then again my god there's a lot of explosion in this film that was one of the things that really shocked me actually was that i was still impressed by it and of course the reason i'm impressed by it is because they actually destroyed a bunch of stuff (laughs) there isn't an ounce of cg in this entire film no no and that's and i think that it's almost more authentic to the point because they show what they can do rather than showing what they can half do and then half add in as extra. So I think you would have, I think, look, I've, you know, one of the reasons I kind of like war films is because I'll never be in that situation where I'm <laughs> yeah. in mortal danger yeah. Yeah, that yeah. I'm aware of. I'm never going to sign up to, or I'm never going to get drafted into an army to fight against, you know, some people. So it's, tr- you know, I mean, it is almost perverse from the, the watcher's point of view is that we're trying to see how people would react and what, chances they have and in this film you know it is you know a lot of other films try to deal with the psychological side of it but this is the only one that for me and full metal jacket actually the two of them get it spot on Um, yeah on this on the psychological point i mean 
so much of what the American soldiers do is reprehensible, and even the people we like a bit on the boat, but you sort of don't judge them for it. You understand it, you feel like you're in, you're in it, um, and you don't forgive them their stupidity and their heinous stuff, but you understand it in the context of they're so young, this enemy mm. and even the even the civilians nearby have been so dehumanised effectively for them. Everyone's doing it. When you've got Kilgore as a captain as well, you know. But it would be things like they would be on their boat and they would create a wave so that the people who are fishing, I think, or, or you know, just people living there yeah. would fall off their thing. And, and they don't see that as being so bad. And, you know, they're so young. Yeah. And they're so desensitised and this war is ridiculous and there's nobody really watching them do the right thing. You sort, yeah. you sort of understand I mean, it. Yeah, and in, in the context of the actual war itself, one of the doctrines they employed during this conflict was the body count. Mm. So they were like, well, you know, we, we've got to exterminate this idea of communism. So what the US Army would do is obviously using their overwhelming might is they would try and find uh, NVA strongholds and Viet Cong strongholds. They would swarm the area, destroy it all to smithereens, um, try and kill as many of the um, you know the North Vietnamese as possible, and then uh, they they that so those that could get away just melted into the forest and you know went underground or uh, went into Cambodia or Laos uh, or you know went further north so they couldn't be caught by the Americans because of their supply lines and yeah that, so there was that attitude of well if you're trying to count the bodies of the dead well, well there's some, well there's two people there I've just killed on a boat I see because oh yeah we you know who's to say that they have to put in a report saying this is what we did. Oh yeah, they, you know, who's to say that there was a puppy in the basket? Yeah. Oh yeah, we found some. That was heartbreaking. Demolition. Yeah, but you're right. And the woman's yeah. contortion when she, the the actress. I know she doesn't die in real life, <laughs> but, but it's she convincing. Yeah, in a horrific manner. She must have been sat there for quite a while while they set up as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it's horrible. And you're right. I mean, there's a there's you know, I could go on for hours about dehumanization and, and deindividuation and what that does to people. Whether you look at mm. you know controlled psychological experiments like like Milgram and Zimbardo, Stanford Prison Experiment, and so on. Or if you just look yeah. at... I mean, in fact, there's a really fantastic study by a person called Watson who looked at uh, tribal warriors and correlated uh, sort of deaths and mutilations and so on against whether or not they changed their appearance before battle. And it's so striking. Yeah. It's almost a perfect correlation between if you change your appearance before battle with you know, masks and so on, you are so much more likely to then kill and mutilate and torture uh, your enemies. And it's, yeah, I mean... That's uh, that's an interesting study. I'd like to wonder the mechanics of that <clears> works whilst they're there in the field hacking at their <laughs> opponents. Are you going to mutilate them? No? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. <laughs> Some guy with glasses about time to Yeah. yeah. Like they're wearing uh, new hats. Is that changing their identity or is this just for the sun? <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, there's, you know, again, we could do a whole series of podcasts on the sort of psychological concepts involved in it. I mean, because PTSD is also a big feature, isn't it? Yeah, indeed, the film deals with that quite well, I think. And we could talk about it for hours, but I don't think we're that sort of podcast. What I thought I'd do is bring in some of the critical response to the film. Always a good uh, thing to do. Always, let's, yeah. I always like to find out what people thought of this film at the time, uh, if it's an older film, film when we weren't alive. You know. it, it, it's so much. It's so much more interesting, isn't it, when the film's forty years old? Because you sort of remember the re critical response to Get Out, for example. Yeah. So um, it's very positive. Metacritic ninety four percent. So it's it's viewed very positively, almost entirely across the scale. Um, Roger Ebert, our as a fan of the show, or the show is a fan of his. <laughs> a friend of the show, Roger he's, Ebert. He's clearly a fan of the show. I mean, he's got to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the death, he gave it death four doesn't stars. let him stop enjoying our podcast. <laughs> Not this show. <laughs> no. um, he gave it four stars. He called it a masterpiece. So really, he should have given it five. Um, and uh, he said that years and years from now, when Coppola's budget and his problems have long been forgotten, Apocalypse will still stand, I think, as a grand and grave and insanely, insanely inspired gesture of filmmaking of moments that are operatic in their style and scope, and of other moments so silent we can almost hear the director thinking to himself. So he liked it. On the other hand, Gary Arnold from the Washington Post was not quite as fulsome as Roger Ebert. He gave it 40%. He said that the atmosphere of Francis Coppola's lamentable magnum opus 
Apocalypse Now, a ruinously pretentious and costly allegorical epic about war in Vietnam, recalls nothing so much as the notorious campfire scenes in Mel Brooks's Blading Saddles. Blading Saddles? Bla- is that like... <laughs> Blazing Saddles. different There's too many... There's not... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. So he didn't like it. <laughs> blading Saddles. That's an uncomfortable uh, trail yeah. ride, isn't it? Oh, ow, I've got blades in my... Oh, ow, I've got blades. Why did we put blades in these saddles? <laughs> it was a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, he, he also, Cariano, goes on to say, the finished film remains a mess of tangled, turgid continuity and florid mod- mock opera style. At best, a collection of production numbers and set pieces waiting in rain for a story capable of accumulating suspense and meaning. So he's he's essentially well, saying it doesn't set give us any new information, and it's and it's it's a mess. Yeah, I mean, look, they're both right. Quite frankly, in this review, I don't agree with the the latter review, um, but there's points or you know I don't agree with what he's saying entirely, but. It is a bit of a mess, and that's what's also wonderful about it as well. Yeah. Because it it is like this all over the place sort of crazy, almost you know Dante esque, you know descent into hell. Um, you know they even say that themselves when you listen to the audio commentary. There's a part of the film where um, there's some soldiers trying to get onto the boat, um, and Coppola says, you know, that's literally the souls of the damned uh, in Dante trying to escape. Oh, that's great. You know. So they were they were very aware of it and yeah I mean look they're saying oh it's like so what are they saying he's criticizing opera <laughs> because someone's tried to make something almost larger than life well he calls it a um, mock operatic so it's not quite operatic right yeah and I understand I mean, the idea of um, it's a mess of set pieces but I think the set pieces hmm. there are lots of set pieces and it's one after the other but they're all contributing. They all make it. It's all to make sense of Willard's Willard's change towards the end, isn't it? It's all it's all adding together. It's and it and it's and it's yeah. essentially sort of um, adventure movie in the sense that he's got a, he's got a destination and he's got to get there with a bunch of people. Yeah, well, it's a it's a film that operates in different genres, isn't it? Essentially, yeah. Um, you know, it operates as a war movie. It operates as you know a slow western. Um, you know, it operates as a, um, you know, as a, a an odyssey kind of throwback. You know, a, an epic. Um, it it is. You can see it through all these different literary and film genres. And um, yeah, like Coppola says himself, it's like when they were filming, it was like they were going back in time. You know, if you watch the Redux version. You see them. He's so they start off in the seventies, then they go to the fifties with the French, and then he's saying now we're going back thousand years with the um, you know the native people of Indochina um, when they get to Kurtz's compound and they've got this big chief who's got no sort of Christian morality essentially to him about how to live life and how to operate, and he's just so focuses on the war, but he's gone mad and um, there's. I, the only thing I always thought with this film is why do the people follow him? There's no real... He might be brilliant, but do they think they should? this is how they win the war? Do they think this is how they should operate in life and that they've been lying to themselves all that time? You know, that's something maybe the, the coppler has said, you know, this is this was the appeal, the appeal of Kurtz to these people, but it doesn't really explain the natives' appeal to him. It explains the Westerns' appeal, but not the native Indo-Chinese or Vietnamese. I know what you mean by that. You do find yourself um, being seduced by by the compounds and everything. I, I, certainly I felt that. And um, he's... Yeah, I, I mean, they they very starkly refer to the Manson family in the film when there's a sort of news headline about that happening, and I think that's very deliberate. Um, you know, and it mm. happens all over the world, happens all the time. You have a sort of pseudo-messianic figure. Um, people flock yeah. to them and idolise them, and like Dennis Hopper's character, will will sort of create a mythology around them for other people. So yeah. that he doesn't act, Kurtz doesn't actually have to do any of the work until Willard gets to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean you're right. It's, it's hard uh, to, hard to explain. Yeah, I mean, there is. 
I mean, obviously, I think the idea is that they show that here's a perfectly rational soldier who's a very intelligent person who went to Vietnam and saw awful things and realized the genius of the enemy's methods and thought this is the only way we can win this war, um, but lost lost himself along the way. I'm trying to... I think because they build him up so much in the film, I almost am wanting to forgive Kurtz for his clearly horrific operations that he he gives that he does you know there's you know the bodies that you see along the the river um as they're getting closer there's not enough sometimes for me there's not enough you don't see enough of what Kurtz has done himself it's like a lot of the carnage you see as well this would have been happening regardless of Kurtz if that makes sense he's just more flavor to the madness um, yeah, you. I mean, you certainly need but, some mystery around him, and and as much as it seemed to be a decision about protecting Marlon Brando, uh, you know, and his ego with with his weight, the the shadows seem to be a much as a decision for the actor. As actually, they make it so much better. It's like in um, in Dark Knight Rises. I've re- referred to that two weeks in a row now. There's a part where hmm. Batman is chasing somebody into a tunnel, and when they come out of the tunnel, it's night time, and it seems like a goof continuity error but actually it's because batman looks ridiculous in the daytime um and so even though he's cool and he's got a great suit and car and everything they know that actually it's better to have him in a bit of darkness and i feel like brando would have looked a bit more ridiculous in the light um perhaps and, yeah. and without that mystery i mean i mean first of all i don't like that choice in the dark <laughs> i thought i remember seeing it at the time being, oh, that's that classic, you know, oh, it's the middle of the day and now all of a sudden it's the middle of the night after they've been in a tunnel for 10 seconds. I mean, for me, I didn't even notice um, it until I watched all kinds of videos around it and so on, but... Really? Yeah. Oh, it was very, very obvious because it's like... You can, you can see that it's like about 4 o'clock in the evening, you know, in the winter there at the time. You know, it's it's quite cold and, you know, it's getting dark, you know, it's near the end of the day, but it literally goes in the tunnel, spends like maybe a minute two minutes in the tunnel max and then they come out and it's about seven eight o'clock but at I, night. Su- I suspect and you're just... right but i suspect it's kind of like okay so we need wall street to still be open but we also don't want batman riding around in the daytime and I've, like i say for me anyway yeah. when i first watched it it didn't affect my viewing at all right so back yeah. to apocalypse now shall we do the quiz so coming up after this break uh, me and sam are gonna do the quiz Right, so time for the quiz, as we mentioned. So, question one. This might be an I, this might be an easy one. We'll see. We seem to have done a lot of research this week, so uh, <laughs> hopefully you won't struggle too much. Name the five men on the boat. Okay, so you got Captain Willard. Yep. Chief. Yep. Chef. Yep. Although they often call him Chef. Clean. And yep. Lance. Well done, yes. one mark. <laughs> Um, how old was Lawrence Fishburne when they cast him? Well, 14. Yeah. Well done. Thanks, mate. Yeah, he was 14 years old when he started this film. That's amazing. Um, what was the name of the river that they are going up? Is it, the, it? is it the Nunga or the Nanga? I've got here Nung? the Ton... No, I've got here the Tonley Selpok. Oh, right, okay, so well, pop. I'm wrong there. Yeah, that was a hard one. I tried to catch, <laughs> wanted to catch you out with that one. Um, so you, because I knew you'd done quite a bit of research, how many feet of film did this movie produce? Good Lord. Well, uh, you know, I think it's 200 hours, so probably uh, 4,000. <laughs> I don't know. Um Okay, I'll give you a. I'll give you. I'll get, I'm going to give you a clue here. Right. It's not in thousands. Okay, <laughs> I don't know what an hour is in feet. Um, I don't know. Six hundred. Six hundred feet. No, one point five million. Oh, I see. Feet <laughs> I was going to say when you said it's not in thousands. thousands. I was like, hmm. Yeah. Well, it can't be. Well, okay. One point what? One point five million. That's a lot of feet. Apparently it took three years to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did hear that. By four editors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, unlucky there. <laughs> uh, who was originally going to direct this film? I heard George Lucas. Yeah. This is, my right, this, is this is one thing I had. But when, when bloody Harrison Ford turned up in that, in that like second scene, I thought, are all your favourite films? I mean, the only of the four that you recommended to me now, the only one that doesn't have Harrison Ford in it is fucking Star Wars Rogue One. <laughs> he has to be in films that you recommend. Is this the? Is this a trick? <laughs> like, um, no. I. Do you know what? I didn't. Obviously, the first time I saw it, I didn't even know he was in it. And that scene, now the first time I was watching, it's going. That's Harrison, Harrison Ford. That's Harrison Ford. Yeah. That is Harrison Ford. And, and I was really it took me out of that scene because yeah. I was kind of going, "What is he in this mall?" Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And that, I was I was shocked. I was really. Uh, yeah. And then he wasn't in it. Yeah, great. Yeah, well done. Thanks. George Lucas was correct. Um, even I didn't know all this stuff before about George Lucas was uh, at UCLA with uh, George. Um, Milus, 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 I think he's called. Sorry, not George. John Milus, the writer. So mm, yeah, Milius, yeah. Milius, Milius. Something like that. Yeah, I th- I think it's a great script as well. The bits that he that kept in the film. I mean, to adapt. The the reason I looked up what won the best Oscar in '79 because I was like, well, this has got to have won best adapted screenplay. Surely, surely, and it hadn't. <laughs> it was something else. It was, Good God. Um, yeah, because. It, it is. I mean, if you're going to adapt film uh, books and novels and famous novels as well, like *The Heart Darkness* by Joseph Conrad, you've really got to do a good job. So, yeah, I think he's yeah he's the the, the unsung hero of this of this film because he's you know your favourite line. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. That's him. Um, yeah, I think he was kind of one of those people, right? Great script, but kind of right person, right time. It was just wonderful dialogue. You know, I wrote about ten different lines down while I was. Watching. It was very difficult to take notes watching it, because as much as it's a, not again, it's not a slow burn, but as as long as a film as it is, it's very. There's a lot going on, and uh, you know, I really struggled to write things down while I was uh, while I was watching, which I think is a good sign. Yeah, I mean, I always, when we do these, um, I always watch the film twice, so I'll always watch the film without any notes, trying to... Right. Um, so when I, it's a film I've recommended, I just try and remember the bits I liked and see if I can pick up any nuance from the bits that I haven't seen before. And then the second time I'll write notes and try and remember, you know, get the bits for the quiz and for the for the line and the scene. And then when I'm the... the when I've been recommended to, I'll... Uh, I'll watch it obviously the first time because I need to see the film and see what's <laughs> happening and just to see if I enjoy it. And then uh, the second time, yeah, I'll try and name the actors and the characters and, you know, just get more solid with the plot oh, yeah. and the premises of the and film. And the listeners are getting a, a big view behind time. the curtain here, getting a lot of a view behind the creative process. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting, you know, it's we've only got so much time to be able to do this. Um, so... Rightio, Sam. Well, that was uh, Apocalypse Now yeah. Then, Now Then, Now Then. Now Then, oh, that's an unfortunate <laughs> impersonation this, this day and age. Yeah, I, I wish we had yeah. four or five more hours to talk about it, but I think we've covered we've covered all the key stuff there. You could go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Absolutely, you? I loved you it. You literally could, because each scene you can break down, you can... It, everything's about something and something important. And um, Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so... Um, how many the horrors, the horrors, um, <laughs> out of 10 would you give it? I went for 8.5. I like a decimal. 8.5 horrors. Yeah, I like a decimal. 8.5 horrors out of 10. Mm. Really would, really would recommend it. I won't be showing my daughter yeah. this for a while. No, that's probably wise. She's two, so, you know, for like two years, two or three years, I won't, I won't show her it. And then I'll, <laughs> and then she'll be with yeah. Princess Bride. as <laughs> a sort of sorbet. Yeah. So Hugh, what are we watching next week? Not that I've given that away or anything. Yeah, so next week, as you mentioned, we're going to watch The Shining. Uh, the uh, Stanley Kubrick, isn't it? Yeah, Stanley Kubrick, 19... It's another 70s film. Uh, what year was this one? 78? Something like that. Or was it earlier than that? It's 74. I'll, make, I'll um, make sure I know all that stuff for next time. Yeah, what do you know about it already, helps. apart from having a stab at the year it came out? <laughs> um, so I don't know the year it was made. <laughs> well, I know it is. So I know it's got Jack Nichols, Nicholson Not in Jack it. Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's di- 
No, no, he's good at golf, but not so good at acting. <laughs> yeah, Jack Nicholas. He's a, he's a, he's actually you know in that scene at the end where it's like zooming in <laughs> on all the people in the the party. He's in the top right hand corner, but he distracts you because it's Jack Nicholson right, in the middle. So the film was like, about oh Jack Nicholas. So you know that shot. Yeah, you know that shot. Yeah, so it's kind of it's a bit like Star Wars for me. Uh, is this one? It's one of those where I've seen so much of the film and I know the plot so well that it's one of those where I never watched it because I know the key scenes, I know what the ending is um, it, and then I was like oh I should really watch that and then when we came up with the concept to do this I thought you know what I'll wait until we uh, recommend it on this and I'll finally sit down and see what all the hype is about Yeah and I think that's um, just as valid isn't it I mean I, uh, you knew nothing about Circle and I knew nothing really about Rogue One and that was enjoyable and that had merit. But I think it is more worthwhile watching those films you've just been putting off because you feel like you have. Like you say, I'd seen, yeah. I, I basically had seen Star Wars, but I hadn't. So that's great. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, to basically finding out what all the fuss is all about and maybe maybe seeing where the, where the inspiration was for Get Out in the uh, style and turn. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually seeing the film from start to finish and I'm looking forward to... Uh, watching the, the performance from Jack Nicholson, basically, because, I mean, I've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and he's amazing in that. So I'm guessing this is kind of in that period where he was making interesting films. So I'm looking forward to that. Great stuff. Um, well, Hugh, where can the listener contact us? So if they go outside um, and get a load of people to create a flash mob, <laughs> but then in that flash mob they make, like, a message that we can read and then put it online. Uh, they can then email that to us at pleasewatchthis.pod at gmail.com. And where can they find us elsewhere on the inter- interwebs? On the interwebs, we're so. also on Twitter. You can find us at pleasewatchpod with a Facebook page soon to uh, soon to arrive. Yep. So um, this is the end <laughs> of the episode. Just wanted to you got a good baritone there, there. That was good. Th- thanks. Yeah. I'll... Uh, I'm going to ditch this and uh, go join a Doors tribute app, probably called The Windows or something along those lines. All right, I'll be raving my Anyway, Okay, well, cool. It's been fun, Hugh. I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye.